Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to our Sunday morning service, whether you're here in the building or you're, you're watching online. A big welcome to you, particularly also if you're a newcomer or a visiting for the first time. It's great to, to have you with us. This morning is the, the second um, Sunday in Advent, and uh, Charles and Caroline Wallace are going to uh, come up and light the, uh, the second Advent candle for us and read for us. Thank you, guys. Prepare the way of the Lord. We light this candle as a sign of light, the coming light of Jesus, our Saviour. Prepare then the way of the Lord. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Well, that promise of light from Isaiah referred to Jesus, who came as the light into this dark world. So let's come to, to the Lord with our prayers. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have given all authority in heaven and on earth, all glory and sovereign power to your Son, Jesus Christ. And we praise you that his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom that will never pass away. We acknowledge that we live at a time when many people have rejected Jesus' authority over them and the values of his kingdom. We live at a time when many people reject authority in general, partly because those in authority have failed to exercise that authority with integrity, with loving kindness. And so we do pray for all those human leaders you have placed in authority, that they would govern with the wisdom and the grace that comes from you. And that as a result, people will be able to live at peace with one another. For those who have experienced abuse at the hands of people in authority, we pray for healing. We pray for grace to forgive. We thank you that Jesus rules as a perfect king. And for those of us who have submitted to his authority over our lives, we thank you for the difference he's made to us. And where we are still tempted to Exercise our own authority over our lives. Forgive us, we pray, and help us to trust in him. Father, we pray this morning for Christians throughout the world who are living in countries where they are being persecuted for their faith. We do lift up to you the work of open doors. Particularly this morning, we pray for the countries of Kenya, for Laos, for Iraq. As believers there prepare to celebrate Christmas, We pray they will be able to do that in their traditional way, dancing, of eating together. We pray for the children of believers that they would know the joy, the hope, the wonder of Christmas. We pray for opportunities for believers in these countries to to share the gospel with others safely, without fear of the consequences. Father, we pray for our students at a university at this time. And we pray for our church family here, for all those who are struggling in different ways at this current time. Those feeling lonely and isolated, those feeling anxious or stressed. Those experiencing physical or mental pain, comfort and strengthen them, we pray. We particularly pray for those who are grieving the loss of loved ones. And pray that this evening would be a helpful opportunity to to experience your comfort and strength in their loss. 
We pray for the reading and preaching from your word now. Pray for Saab, that uh, his teaching will be clear and faithful, that you'd give him the strength to be able to preach, and that through it your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see Jesus in all his glory and majesty. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, before Saab comes up to preach, James Hughes is going to bring us the reading, which is from Daniel chapter 7, verse 9 to 18. So the reading, as Neil said, is from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 9 to 18. Um, If you've got a church Bible, you can find it on page 893. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch, because of the boastful words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. The other beasts had been stripped of their authority, but were allowed to live for a period of time. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kings that will rise from the earth. But the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Thank you for reading for us, James. Before we start, let's, uh, let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and the trustworthy truths it holds. Help us this morning to see the Lord Jesus with increasing clarity and help our hearts to marvel at your love for us. As we look at your word now, speak to us and minister to our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, This morning we are going to be closing our final uh, chapter of our mini-series, Looking at the One Who Is uh, to Come. And we've been saying in the previous weeks uh, that the reason for doing this mini-series is to give us a moment to stop and reflect on just who this Jesus is, the one uh, who comes to us, uh, we remember, in a manger. Uh, In this series we're taking a little time to stop and reflect about what the Bible says this one who is to come is. 
Uh, not what Hollywood says, not what the ad men say, uh, but what the Bible tells us about Jesus. And through this series, we've been doing that uh, by looking at bits of, bits of the Bible uh, that aren't in the gospel. So ex, not, uh, not the gospels themselves. And my prayer as we journey through uh, this series is that as we approach the manger, as Christmas draws closer and closer, that we would marvel more and more at what it means for Jesus to have been born of Mary in a manger. And that as we dwell on that, that we would be absolutely staggered that such a thing could happen. And seeing that that is in fact what God did, that we would be both humbled and that we would know that we are loved to the skies. That's my prayer for us. So who is he, the one who was born in a manger? In previous weeks, uh, we've looked at the fact that uh, this is the one who is before all things. Uh, He's preeminent. We looked at the fact that he is above all things. He's supreme. And last week, we had a peep behind the curtain into the throne room, and we see that he is truly majestic. And today, I'd like us to see that the one in the manger is the one who has all authority. But before we dive into Daniel 7, I just want to remind us that we're looking at apocalyptic writing, uh, that genre called apocalyptic writing, which simply means revelation. Uh, There's a lot of imagery that's used, and so we can't just do a straight one-for-one reading of what's in the text, so we have to uh, handle it uh, with care. So, given that, uh, let's look at our text And as we journey through, I'd like us to see three things. Uh, Firstly, that there is a judgment. Uh, Secondly, that there is a coronation. And thirdly, that there is a surprise. Judgment, coronation, surprise. And we're going to see the judgment in verses 9 through 12. The coronation in verses 13 through 14. And then finally, the surprise for us in verses 15 through 18. So firstly, judgment. Uh, We find ourselves in Daniel 7. And there's been a lot that's been going on in the book, uh, which gives colour to this vision and helps us see the richness uh, in the vision that we might otherwise miss. So I think it's important just to have a little bit of context uh, before we dive into the text. The people of Israel uh, knew that there was only one true living God. That... uh, It was the one true living God who had created all things. And they knew that this one true living God had defeated the superpower of Egypt, had had rescued this people for himself. Uh, Then God had driven those people who were in the promised land out and presented the promised land to his people. And they knew that there was no God like this one true God. This one true God who came to them uh, as a pillar of cloud rested on Mount Sinai. This one true God who tabernacled uh, with them um, and then was there over the temple also. There was no God like this one true living God. So you can imagine the confusion of the people of Israel. They were overrun by the Assyrians. They were then overrun by the Babylonians and driven into exile. And they are wondering... How could it be? How could it be that the people of the one true living God could be overrun by other nations? How could it be that they could be carried off into exile? How could it be that the temple and the city of the one true living God could be raised to the ground? 
Had God abandoned them completely? Or, or harsher still, as the people of Israel were held in a foreign land, had the people of Israel been mistaken about God? Was the God that they worshipped less than the gods of the Assyrians and less than the gods of the Babylonians? Did the one true living God have any authority over the gods of the empires around them? And that's the context that God gives Daniel Uh, Sorry, that's the context into which God gives Daniel the ability to receive visions and understand dreams. And then Daniel records for us this vision. Verses 9 through 11. And he writes this. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were ablaze. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. Then I continued to watch because of the boastful words words the horn was speaking. I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body destroyed and thrown into the blazing fire. So take a look at... Verse 9, as Daniel gives us the picture of the most dramatic of courtroom scenes. Now, this isn't Judge Judy or Judge Rinder designed to titillate, or even Oprah or Jerry Springer pronouncing judgments for the sake of TV ratings. This isn't even the Supreme Court weighing legal disputes and matters of significant social justice. No, this is a court which has in the judge's seat the one who's called the Ancient of Days, none other than God the Father himself. This is the one seat that matters. And as the Ancient of Days sits down, he brings the court into session. The image here is of one true and final judge. Now, the Ancient of Days, we read, is dressed in pure white and his hair is as white as wool. Uh, The whiteness of his hair symbolizes the fact he's older than time itself. His splendor, his utter holiness and his purity are symbolized by the brilliant white clothing. This is one of whom there is nothing dark, nothing impure, and nothing unclean. And we're told that the throne is surrounded by fire, which is pronouncing judgment. It's a throne, did you notice, that's on wheels. This is a judge that is not static. This judge isn't rooted in one location, in one country, in one area, indeed is not rooted in any one time. This is a throne that covers all time and all places. It's a throne that really is above all thrones. And in verse 10, we're told that the court, when it sits, has a vast multitude. Uh, This is more than can be counted there in the throne room. You notice it's not God judging quietly and secretly. This is a God who is utterly just. The judgment will be based on the written record. And at the end of verse 10, we're told that the books were opened. The judge and the great multitude could see and read the book. The judgment would be fair and it would be true. 
And the empires that stood before God claiming to have authority and dominion, they are the ones that are brought to trial. And the leading enemy of God, the beast that we see in verse 11, was killed and its body destroyed. Whatever power the beast claimed to have, it was nothing compared to the power of God. The dominion that the enemies of God claim is not a dominion that they have. It's God's dominion. See, when humanity draws a line on a map to say which part of the world belongs to who, it's utter folly because it's all God's. And it may seem as though for a period that there are other powers or rulers which seem to be bigger than God or more powerful than God. But history teaches us that all empires, all empires come and go. The Babylonian Empire came and spoke boastful words and everyone thought that that empire would last forever. But it crumbled. Same with the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, the Mongolian Empire, the Russian Empire and even the British Empire. They came and everyone thought they were going to be there forever. But they crumbled. How about the modern day tech empire, including Apple, Google, Amazon and Facebook, that comes speaking boastful words? Modern day empires with their temples of shopping centers where we can all receive retail therapy. Modern day idols of branded electronics and designer clothing, all bathed in the modern day cult culture built on individualism and on capitalism. I wonder, uh, do we recognize the empire that we live in? And importantly, uh, does our life, does our life reflect the values of the empire that we're living in more than the truths of the kingdom that we belong to? Say that again. Does our life reflect the values of the empire that we're living in more than the truths of the kingdom that we belong to. I think that all of our lives, to a greater or lesser degree, reflect the values of the empire more than the kingdom we profess with our lips, all of us, including me. So what's to be done? Brings us to our second point. God appoints a king, the coronation. Take a look with me at Daniel 7, verses 13 through 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now here we have an amazing scene that centers around one who's called like a son of man in verse 13. Uh, Daniel in his vision uh, sees someone who appears to have the physical appearance of a man. And he comes before the ancient of days in what is described as the clouds of heaven. Uh, The image here is of the glory cloud of God himself. Uh, The cloud that when it rested on Mount Sinai splintered the mountain. The glory cloud that kept back the Egyptian army. Uh, The glory cloud that causes people to fall on their face as though dead before it. 
that's the cloud that this one, like a son of man, comes in. This one, like a son of man, is both truly human and truly divine. And this son of man is brought before God, and what we witness is his coronation. The king is crowned. And on this one, this king, one like a son of man, we're told in verse 14, is given authority, glory, and sovereign power. And it's the ancient of days, it's God the Father himself that bestows these things on this figure. The ancient of days who, through judgment, rightly restores all dominions. And he has the power to grant and establish kingdoms. And he grants authority, glory, and power to this one, like a son of man. And the kingdom that's bestowed is everlasting. We see that in verse 14. Never to pass away, never to be destroyed. The son of man is given all authority. So that begs the question, who is the one who's described as being like a son of man? Now, in the Old Testament and in Jewish culture, the title, Son of Man, uh, could be taken quite literally as someone who's been born. In other words, a person. But this, Son of Man, was Jesus' favorite title for himself. This is a title that Jesus takes on his lips more often than any other title. But it wasn't always clear to the people that he was speaking to whether Jesus was using the title to say that he's a man or whether he's saying he is the son of man, the one that Daniel had in his vision. As some clearly did realize that Jesus was making claims to be God and they sought to kill him. But it's not until the night before Jesus is killed that the Jewish council realizes what Jesus has been saying about who he is in all of its glory. On the night before Jesus is killed, Jesus is questioned before the council, the leaders of the Jewish council, and they ask him if he is God's appointed one. And he says this, I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the majesty of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. And there's no doubt about what that means. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. Think for a moment what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the one who is right at the heart of the vision that Daniel has, the figure that looks like a man, the one who's presented before God the Father... And by God crowned with all authority, the one who comes in the glory clouds of heaven and is surrounded by the glory of God himself, the one to whom all authority, all power is given. Jesus says, that's me. Jesus says, that's me. The vision that Daniel had is one who is truly human and truly God. And he says, that's me. Jesus claims to be the son of man, the one that Daniel saw in his vision. And it's a remarkable statement, isn't it? I wonder when you and I, when we think about Jesus in the manger at Christmas, do we have that vision in our minds? The one with all authority 
in the manger. The one crowned by God the Father in the manger. The king above all kings in the manger. It's extraordinary. Now the high priest understood what Jesus was saying. He understood that Jesus was claiming to be God himself. And he was incandescent with rage. What Jesus says about who he is provoked an incredibly sharp response. Uh, Oftentimes people will say to me uh, that they believe that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. Uh, The things that he said were, you know, they were were good teaching, amazing teaching. And in fact, 2,000 years have not surpassed his teaching. And they say that because of that, they can accept Jesus as a moral teacher, uh, but not as God. Listen to uh, what C.S. Lewis uh, says in one of his essays. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who said he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The only credible response to what Jesus says is rejection to run away from him or to fall at his feet and to worship him. The one thing we can't say is that he's nice. This is the one who has all authority. That's a challenge for us. Uh, If we look at our lives, what do they say about how we look at the truth? The truth that Jesus is indeed the one with all authority. Uh, Do our lives reflect Jesus as the one with all authority? Does Jesus' authority as God's anointed and appointed king mean that we allow him to rule over all areas of our life? Or only some? Is our response to who Jesus is lukewarm? How do we know? Five quick diagnostic questions uh, for all of us, uh, including me. Firstly, uh, prayer life. Uh, Does Jesus' authority in my life mean that I'm eager to come to God in prayer with all things? Or only when it's convenient? Or if it's something I can't do myself? Uh, Home life. Uh, Does Jesus' authority in my life mean that I love my husband, wife, children in a way that brings Jesus glory? Uh, Private life. Does Jesus' authority in my life mean that even when no one's looking, my internet browsing honours him? Uh, our hearts, our heart attitudes. Uh, does Jesus' authority in my life mean that my pride is drained away and I humbly look to serve and love others? What about our financial life? Uh, does Jesus' authority in my life mean that I'm willing to give money for gospel work and give sacrificially? 
Or is my giving only to the point where it's not too painful? I I, I could go on, right? But I I think you get the point. Uh, There are so many questions that we could uh, ask ourselves, uh, you and me, to reveal whether there are parts of our lives where, actually, we're lukewarm. And you've probably got many other questions uh, that run around your mind at this moment. Now, at this point in the talk, it's easy to be a little bit downcast. In Daniel 7, we've seen God, uh, the Father, who will fairly and clearly judge all things. And as we think about the state of our own hearts, we know that there is no way uh, in our own efforts and under our own steam, our own goodness, that we'll ever be right with God. A God who will judge very fairly is a test that in our hearts we know that we can never pass. And he's appointed Jesus as the one with all authority. The king that has authority is also daunting, isn't it? What happens if I can't muster up the oomph to worship him? What if I can't change the desires of my heart to want to do anything other than be lukewarm towards God? You see, if we try to do this in our own strength, then what we're actually doing is we're restraining our hearts. We're bending them with our will. They're not being transformed. What we need is a heart that is completely transformed. And that brings us to our third point, the surprise. Let's read verses 15 through 18. I, Daniel, was troubled in spirit, and the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. I approached one of those standing there and asked him the meaning of all this. So he, he told me and gave me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are the four kings that will rise from the earth, but the holy people of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever and ever. Sorry, possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Daniel, in his vision, approaches someone to seek an explanation. And he turns to somebody who's standing there in the assembly with the Ancient of Days. Just as the Ancient of Days takes his seat to judge the four beasts. And as the one who is like the Son of Man is presented and anointed with all authority, glory and power. The empires that rebel against God, humanity as it rebels against God, will be judged for it. But then, in verse 18, there's a real surprise. Now, I know you've got your Bibles open. Don't look at verse 18 just for a moment. Um, Let's have a look at this. But the blank of the Most High will receive the kingdom and will possess it forever. Yes, forever and ever. Now, we've just read, haven't we, that the Ancient of Days judges those rebellious empires. That the one who is like the Son of Man is given authority and is anointed and appointed to have an everlasting kingdom. Now, in the light of that, what might you expect would fit in the blank? Uh, you might think, but the Son of Man will receive kingdom and will possess it forever and ever. Or you might think the King of Kings. Yeah, but the King of Kings of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess it forever, yes, forever and ever. But extraordinarily, amazingly, we're told that the kingdom of God will be passed to the holy people of God. 
The kingdom that God is inaugurating is for us. For you and for me. Uh, We might think that because we've rebelled against God, lived for ourselves, and been lukewarm towards God, that he would judge us too, cast us away from his presence. We know that if a book of our lives, our thoughts and deeds were ever opened, we would be condemned by that book. But amazingly, we're told that the kingdom that God has given to the one with all authority is for us, for you and me to receive and to possess. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? But how can we be sure? How can we be sure? And we can be sure because of the manger. Because the one who is preeminent, the one who is supreme, the one who is truly majestic, and the one who has all authority is the one who comes as the baby in the manger. Jesus was the only person to have lived a perfect life. And he deserved to receive his father's embrace, but instead he received the fire of our judgment on himself, in our place. He is the one true king who has all authority, but he laid down his crown. He subjected himself to a kangaroo court, all that so you and I might receive and possess the kingdom for all eternity. And that's the truth, the surprise that we need to change our hearts. And to the extent that we can work that truth into our hearts, we'll be able to live lives that are not lukewarm towards God. There'll be lives that are full of joy for what God has done for us in and through Christ, rescuing us from eternal judgment if you will trust in Christ And if you do, you will receive and possess the kingdom forever. I wonder, have you heard Christ's pardoning voice in your life? Have you allowed his love to be poured into your heart? If not, what's stopping you from coming to him? Uh, But some of you I know are trusting in Jesus And your lives have been marked with deep pain. You may be nursing very, very deep wounds. Maybe the loss of someone you love. Maybe ill health has made your life almost too difficult to bear. Perhaps your deepest prayers haven't been answered for love, for children, for healed relationships. And it feels to you that God on the throne is far, far away from you. And your question this morning may be, how can the Son of Man be preeminent, supreme, majestic, and have all authority, and for me to be so broken inside, with so much pain? I'm I'm not going to patronise you this morning with glib answers. I'm not going to try to minimise your suffering, deflect from your pain, or minimise your anguish. Why have you had to bear so much pain? I I don't know why. There are no easy answers. But Jesus, but Jesus coming as a baby in a manger tells me one thing with all certainty. It cannot be because he doesn't care for me. It cannot be because he doesn't love me. 
Jesus coming as a baby meant that he grew up and experienced the trials that we have faced. Have you been betrayed by people closest to you? Uh, So was Jesus. He was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, abandoned by his disciples and denied by his best friend. Have you wept at the graveside of someone you love? Uh, So was Jesus. He wept at the graveside of his friend Lazarus. Have you been denied a big prayer request? Uh, So was Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Have you been the subject of rough justice? Uh, So is Jesus. Having been subjected to a kangaroo court, tortured and brutally killed. See, but because Jesus came as a baby, we know that Jesus knows our pain. He's been there. He's walked in our shoes. Uh, In a broken world, we experience significant trials, but they do not mean that we have been abandoned or forgotten by God. And the cross tells us that. The promise is that in our darkness, we are not alone. In our darkness, he is close to us. If you let him, he will carry you. And by his spirit, he will minister to your heart. In our trials, our best hope is to run to him. He understands our pain and he'll minister to our hearts. The one who is preeminent, supreme, majestic and with all authority is the one who laid all those things down so that he could hold on to you and never let you go. The king of kings, who is a good and gracious king, laid down his crown so he could be at your side. The one who is above all things came at Christmas. And he came to have you through all eternity. So hold on to that truth as we move towards the manger this year. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity we've had to raise our eyes up and see the enormity of the one we remember coming as a baby in the manger, the Lord Jesus. Help us have a right perspective as we journey through the season of Advent. Fill our hearts with awe. And Father, for those who are in a season of trial, might the promise of your presence with them by your Spirit Provide them with a profound sense of your peace, your strength, your comfort, and as they draw on your strength, endurance. Amen.